Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Elio with the Spectrum Strategy Group. And uh, today's episode, I have uh, Stephen Wood here with me from uh, Origin. And welcome. And so uh, I'm really happy that you've taken time to meet with me today. I uh, was doing some research and found an article um, from January that came across my email on... um, the assessment of suicidal behaviors among individuals with autism spectrum disorder. And I was uh, intrigued and wanted to read more. So I kept reading and I reached out to one of your colleagues and she pointed me to you (laughs) as, as the expert with the autism overlapping with this topic, um, you know, with that area of expertise. So I, I'm really happy that you agreed to meet with me today, but uh, before we get into all that, I know it's also a very, uh, it can be a very heavy topic. Um, if you could give the audience just a little bit of background on who you are and, and maybe what origin is, uh, that would be really great. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Okay. So, um, uh, I'm Stephen Wood. I'm a professor at the university of Melbourne and I'm uh, the head of clinical neuroscience at Origin. Now, Origin is uh, a youth mental health centre at uh, in Melbourne, and we have uh, a clinical service for young people with um, mild, actually mild to severe mental health problems. So that's people between the age of fifteen and twenty-five who might have a psychotic disorder. They might have uh, depression. They might have just uh, a, a much more mild anxiety or some emerging personality issues, those sorts of things. But that's that's the clinical side. We also um, have advocacy, fundraising. Uh, we lobby government uh, for reform of the mental health sector and then a research program. And I'm um, involved in the research program specifically. So I have uh, been working in research now for uh, over 20 years. Um, with a particular interest in young people who are developing uh, a mental illness. And I guess most of my work has been in young people developing psychosis. And I kind of got into um, uh, looking at people who have autism or autism traits because of the overlap between psychosis and autism, or at least the, um, the ways in which those two conditions kind of can contribute to each other or can be misdiagnosed. Um, and so that's where we got into this uh, uh, particular work. So um, it's been uh, quite a, a recent change for me to be fo- focusing on autism more uh, and in some ways has just made me feel even more uh, like I lack knowledge and <laughs> uh, it's uh, it, it's just every time you open a new uh, area of interest, you just realize how much you don't know. 
It's just another one. Yeah, no, definitely. And and I've heard that um, often. And I think um, something I really, that really struck me and you've kind of already started touching on it and you talked about how you kind of got into this particular area of study um, is, you know, just in working with clients and just personal experience um, and working in the classroom, you know, we see this heavy overlap of anxiety, which can lead to depression in, in young people um, and in all people with um, autism, but we never say, you know, it's not part of the diagnostic criteria per se. Um, but, you know, we say, I think people have said there's a number like 70% of people with autism have, you know, anxiety. Um, I, I personally don't know anyone who hasn't, <laughs> but, um, you know, so so just, I think that's just a number maybe, I, I don't know. So, so it's been an area that we've really looked at um, but, but I don't know, you know, I don't know other than my own firsthand experience, what that is or why. Mm. So, so when I came across this, I really thought, wow, there must be, um, you know, some sort of connection here. Uh, and there's all different reasons. I think that people kind of, uh, you know, make assumptions about, but then here I see this study and I was like, oh, and this is nice and recent <laughs> as yeah. of January. Um, so, so can you uh, give me the catalyst for doing this this particular study? So, yes, I mean, you, you, I guess this particular study is really interested in in a particularly bad outcome uh, for all people with mental illness, which is suicide and suicide behaviour. Um, and the question that we were asking was, is this more frequent uh, when people have autism? So do you see more cases of suicide in people who have a history of autism? Do you see more suicide behaviour, not just completed suicide? Um, and, are, you know, are there any particular, um, I guess, demographic or, or, or clinical reasons why that should be the case? Um, and part of the reason for that is that there's already a sense that, that suicide is higher in uh, suicidal attempts certainly are higher in people who have a history of autism. But we wanted to do something that was a bit more comprehensive, a bit, you know, that covered the ground better in a sample that was sort of a population sample. And so this work is done in one of the um, Nordic countries in, Dan in Denmark. And um, Denmark is great for doing this kind of work because they um, capture this kind of epidemiological sample in their whole population. So they have um, great record keeping for their population in terms of what um, when they go to hospital, their, um, what happens in terms of social security, what happens at birth, all these sorts of things are, are well captured. But, and it's not just in Denmark, but Denmark's a great place to look for the sort of, this sort of thing. So it means that we were able to study over six and a half million people um, which is great, right? I mean, that's and that's so that's people who are ten or yes, ten or older, living in Denmark between I think it was nineteen ninety five and twenty sixteen. Um, and so, um, what we looked at was um, how many of those people had received a diagnosis of ASD, um, and how many incidents of suicide attempts there had been 
um, and whether they, so, and then whether they're distributed differently amongst the group that have the this diagnosis of ASD versus those who don't. Um, and, and and yeah, and what we found is is what we had suspected from the previous work that actually yes, it's higher. There is there are more suicide attempts in people with ASD than there are in people who don't have that diagnosis. About three times higher. Um, and that's that. In fact, just thinking about that, that is actually both for us for attempts and for successful suicide higher. Um, now, I guess what we wanted to follow up on was what's what's behind that. Are there any things that we can explain for that? So one of them was um, that uh, attempts were higher in women than in men. Now, actually, that's normal. Well, I say normal. You see that in people who don't have autism either. Um, women tend to make more attempts. Men tend to be make more successful attempts because they tend to choose more lethal methods. Um, but um, actually, it's that that um, uh, sex difference is bigger in the autism group than it what is in um, the neurotypical group. So you mean the the uh, male to female kind of ratio? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. So I think I think the difference is about one and a half times more women make attempts than men. Um, at least that's right, I think, for our study. Um, but in the ASD individuals, I think it's more like four times. Hmm. Um, okay. Now, in this kind of population study, you can't drill further down into that. You know, like you just get told by the data, this is this is the difference, right? <laughs> um, and so you've got to then try, you, you, there's a, it, it kind of makes you want to go, well, what's going on there? And, you know, obviously we already know that um, uh Males tend to get diagnosed with ASD more than females. Mm -hmm. That the pattern, you know, the, the kind of presentation, what sort of, of behaviours people have is different depending on whether you're um, a man or a woman. And maybe women just don't get supported very well mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. when they have autism, partly because it's, you know, it's regarded as more of a male problem. So, you know, women, I mean, women should be able to, I don't know, cope with it better i don't know that's it's not clear what what's going on in that but that's something to um certainly think about um and um and i guess one of the other things to that we really um uh keen to look at was other uh comorbid psychiatric disorders so when when um people have we, I mean, we already know that people with uh, mental illnesses are more at risk for suicide. And is that true also when people have ASD? Well, yes, it is. Um, uh, and um, it's, in fact, if you've got a comorbid disorder, you, you're about um, nine times more likely to attempt suicide than if you don't have any psychiatric disorder at all. So it's clearly um, uh, a particular concern for right. people with who have this, you know, historic diagnosis of autism, that if they develop a mental illness, then they're significantly more at risk for um, a suicide attempt. And that's that's key to a whole lot of intervention mm -hmm. programs. Um, mm -hmm. And it works in, in two ways, I suppose. So one is, and, and this is where I guess the work that we're trying to do at Origin fits in even more, is if a young person is presenting for the first time with, say, major depression, you need to screen for autism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 
and it might be that this person you can just you know you can ask um have you know have you had a diagnosis of autism growing up we can talk to the family but it might be that you know this person's never been diagnosed um and that uh you know for whatever reason whether that care was just not available to them nobody thought that this might be an issue for them um you know they yeah we know that autism is quite well it's in the name right it's a spectrum mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it's quite possible that people go oh, this person's just a bit odd and never thought that they should be um at least you know asking that kind of question so you need to sure. think to to so we, we we think clinicians really need to be um checking about the about the autism spectrum when a person first comes in um mm. but equally when you when people are known to have autism you've got to be really cautious about not overshadowing everything about their behavior with the autism that you know about that you so you, you were saying you know anxiety really prominent in in many people with autism and there's a there's a sense of oh well it's just the autism no mm -hmm. need to worry well actually that's <laughs> not it's it's not that straightforward you know you've got to think maybe this is different now maybe this especially as um as young people with autism grow into adults with autism and um, that's a risk factor for everybody you know um mental illnesses are the illnesses of young people uh, mm -hmm. and that's true for people who've grown up with autism as it is for people who haven't um and so you, you know you can't just uh you know whitewash everything with the autism brush and say that's ah, just that so yeah so when when managing well when managing when caring for a person with autism or when when, when a person with autism seems to change their behavior you've got to think mm, i wonder whether there's something else uh, because if you don't then there's a there's a real concern that um their risks of uh, suicide attempts are going to be much higher uh, and that's a you know a terrible outcome for anybody yeah and i think that's a that's a great point one thing that i get asked um, by clinicians often is, and I'm actually be working with a group in starting next week, um, is, well, how do we know, right? Like, how can we tell what, what is autism and what is another, you know, mental health illness, right? Like, how can we tease that out? Um, and, and what can we do? And, you know, I, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, I often say, I'm not sure how we do that. And we have a conversation, you know, and I, and again, I'm not, I'm not a clinician in that aspect, but, um, but from what I hear, it, it can be so complicated that we're not sure. Yeah. But, and look, that, um, I, I really get that. Um, there's, there's a lot of overlapping uh, symptoms and behaviors that depending what label you put on the top of the piece of paper, you know, that, that you're using to assess this will determine what you call it in the end. Um, for example, um, just a simple, um, well, say simple, we talk about social cognition or, you know, the ability to understand social uh, meaning in others' behaviours and speech and so on. And there are lots of mental health conditions where there's problems with interpreting other people's social intentions. Um, now, if you if you ask about um, social cognition on a screener that has autism label at the top, then all of those symptoms are autism symptoms. But if you do it on a screener that is about schizophrenia, for example, then all of those symptoms are schizophrenia symptoms, right? So, so, so it, it is it is challenging to to do that. On the other hand, you could.
could adopt a much more deal with what's in front of you approach. You know, the label is less important than the ba- than, than what you're seeing. Um, you know, that, that actually is a little bit trite in different health insurance systems where the label is, is it kind sure. of important to, to what, you're, <laughs> what you're eligible for. But from, right. a, from a pure clinical perspective, you, um, you don't necessarily have to um, get too bothered about what the diagnostic label would be for this person. Um, those diagnoses uh, are, you know, they're syndromal. They're they're not necessarily all that reliable. We know that they're more like, uh, you know, again, spectrum is a really great word here because mm-hmm. when you think about the rainbow, you know there's red and you know there's yellow. But the point mm-hmm. at which they st- it stops being red and starts being yellow, well, that's complicated, right? <laughs> and the same is true in in mental illnesses. Um, comorbidity is the rule; it's not the exception. People present with lots of things all at the same time, and they change over time. And so mm-hmm. it's so so. I think you know that's uh, we've allowed um, sort of a sort of the bureaucratic approach of needing to label things and to have a diagnosis and put people in streams to sometimes get right. in the way of the appropriate care for the person in front of us. Right. And so if we look at that, we're, when we look at these comorbidities, what were some of the ones that or were there? Any trends or patterns that you noticed in in that, particularly for those um, with autism that presented themselves uh, in this Danish study? Yeah. So, um, was there anything in particular? So, I, I'm just trying to check through the numbers to see if there was something really uh, prominent. Um, Perhaps unsurprisingly, um, mood disorders come up mm-hmm. uh, as um, really important. Um, so you get about a 20-fold increase in certain mm-hmm. attempts in people who have a depression and ASD compared to a 12-fold increase in people who have depression but don't have ASD. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and if you look at some of the other ones, I mean, an interesting one, and this is where things, again, get messy. So substance use disorders are always really highly associated with suicide. So mm-hmm. it's about, it's nearly 30 times higher risk of um, suicide attempts in uh, people with ASD and a substance use comorbidity compared to around, I think it's 16 times in mm-hmm. people who have just the substance use comorbidity. But that's partly, of course, because substance use can um, result in suicide attempts because you have substances around that can kill you, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, um, you know, the, it, that, that matters a lot, you know, whether you've got the means to attempt suicide compared to not. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think, I, I, I think that there's just an awful lot of um, general overlap here so, so it's, it's not it's not because partly because the comorbidity is so strong right so you can say mm-hmm. oh, depression depression and anxiety are comorbid a lot substance use disorder is really very rarely on its own just substance use right. and no other mental health problem so you know you've got this mixture so then when you try and separate out by these diagnoses you see yeah, yeah you've got these individual um numbers that tell you the increased rates um but then you've, you've got to think how frequent is this going to exist in in 
real world that I'm going to see this this person who only has uh, a substance use disorder and ASD and nothing else mm. is going on for this person. That's really <laughs> unlikely. So you, you've got to think, right, you, right. You, 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 you can do the research at that level, but then you've got to think, well, actually, if I'm going to apply this clinically, it's better to think about psychiatric disorders as a whole, that they mm-hmm. maximise or maximise, they definitely inflate the risk of suicide attempt. Right. So it, so in looking at all that as, as someone working with and, you know, uh, living with or, you know, just being able to coach, whatever, how do we as families and educators and clinicians um, uh, better support this? I mean, I know this is partly this, I think it's twofold. One, it's the immediate support, whether you're a, a parent or an educator or clinician, but then there's also the, right, there's a, syst- a systemic issue with mental health, at least yeah. I know here, here definitely. Um, so, so, First, let's let's attack the one that we have some control over, which is <laughs> right. Like, like, what do we do personally for our students, for our children, uh, for other loved ones, um, so that we can help mitigate some of this um, and minimize this sort of tragedy that that uh, we don't want to yeah. see. Well, mm-hmm. so, um, I it, some of these things I I think are no different from supporting a young person who doesn't have ASD. Um, so space has to be made for uh, open communication in a family. Um, you know, the, it, for, the same, for the same reason that you want your young person to trust you and talk to you, you want the same about your young person who has ASD. There's no difference there, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so that's, um, that's about being um, honest about feelings and um not judgmental about when somebody says you know that they're feeling really down it's it's really not uncommon for people to say well what have you got to be depressed about right it's like you know you've got a great you've got a great family you know we look after you you know it's like because certainly i think um i mean and I'm parent of teenagers as well i think we can sometimes feel like this is a, an attack on our parenting mm. um you know that so for some somehow I'm not looking after you right, and that's why this is happening. Um, and that's just—I mean—that's just not true. Um, mental disorders are really common; and they're really, really common in teenagers and young adults. And so it's not—it's not about parenting. It's about this is a difficult period of of life in terms of um, developing one's own personality and, and generating independence and the uh, and the stresses that that people are under in in that period often because you're changing social groups social groups are really important to you anyway but when you leave school and you've got to go back to work and so on and um, now obviously depending on um how much impact a person's autism is having on their social groups and their social life and and so on that that may well be different but but that's a matter of degree the actual um Things that are important are are the same. Um, so there's so that's I think part one is you want to be, um, you want to be a parent who can, who can be approached, and who has a space open for conversation. Um, and <laughs> one of the things that I so when I, I've given talks um, to um, I guess parent groups at schools and they're always asking you know what, what can we do about this, um, and I say you know you need to. You need to have this environment where you can chat with your young person. Um, maybe that's because you're driving them to soccer training or 
or something like that. And you know that when when you're not directly looking at each other face to face, even <laughs> uh, you know we talk about eye contact in people with autism anyway. But it's true for adolescents; they don't want to be you know grilled about their social life or their how they're feeling. Um, so not having a face to face conversation is often much much better. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't suddenly institute this third degree interrogation when somebody turns thirteen, right? And um, this is. You know, this has got to be part of how you how you generally parent. You know, if you're suddenly interested in who you hang out with, you know, um, were there any drugs at that party? You know, all those sorts of kind of questions that parents sort of want to know. You, you, it's got to be because it's got to come from a place of you've you've always had this kind of um, interest in your young person's life and and uh, an opportunity to talk. Um, so I think that's probably the the, the key thing, and the the difference for. Um, for people who have a uh, a teenager who has autism spectrum disorder, is to um, well, and I realise this is a lot easier to say than it is to do, uh, is is to try to um, not is to try to not ascribe everything to just autism, but equally to try not to catastrophize that every change. Especially, you know, I mean, people who might be listening to this are thinking, oh, my God, um, suicide's so much more likely. I mean, uh, suicides are rare, generally. So the numbers that I've talked about before now are what we call relative risk. So, you know, one is the risk in the general population compared to nine, whatever it is, in the population with autism. So it's nine times more risky. But if the risk is very low to begin with, which thankfully it still is for suicide, it, it, it's a big killer of young. It's the biggest killer of young people, but actual, actual numbers are low. Um, so you, you, it's trying to avoid that um, catastrophizing and uh, and trying trying to take things seriously. But as I say, most of the time, that that what that requires is the opportunity to talk with with young people to have a space for a, an open conversation about um, how people how you are feeling, how they are feeling, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a couple things that you hit on here as a, as a parent, there's so much that happens, especially if you find out that your, um, your child is diagnosed at a young, a younger age, which, you know, we, we want to kind of do that now. We want to be able to have that opportunity, but sometimes we approach, you know, what comes next sort of with that very heavy weight with that, you know, feeling like it's a catastrophe. Oh, now we have all these therapies to go to, you know, there's Mm. speech and OT and ABA and, you know, all of these things. And we've now added so much weight to our plate that I think uh, our children feel that. So they feel that there's this weight placed on, um, on their, on general day-to-day life that maybe their peers aren't experiencing. I think Mm -hmm. as parents, we feel that too. And then, we add on to that if our, if, our, and I know what you're saying, you know, your, your child comes to you, especially a teenager and they're not, you know, they're saying something that you're like, well, what do you mean? I feel like I've done so many things and it's not right. Uh, it's still not good enough. Um, but, you know, I, I think part of that is also if they get the sense that you're not open to hearing that kind of feedback or, you know, at least 
hearing what they have to say, that then that's still yet another burden they carry is that yeah. they don't want to make you feel like you're there, there's something wrong. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, we can probably get into the masking piece here and, you know, maybe that's some of the, the male female kind of um, difference. Um, but I, I think that there's this heavy weight that gets placed on uh, just having those letters and having that diagnosis. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, I think there's a, I, I'm never quite sure how, well, not never quite sure. And I, I am not sure how much I like the, you know, the hyper male hypothesis for ASD. And um, I think I've, I find it overly simplistic as a, you know, as an explanatory theory. Um, and it, but it, there are certainly features of being male that make a difference to how to talk about feelings. So by and large, men are not encouraged to talk about their feelings. Boys don't cry, remember. Um, and, and in fact, often the, the emotion that's acceptable for men is anger. Um, and I... Um, if there's any weight to this, you know, hyper male kind of idea around the, um, the, the autism spectrum, then one might expect it hard to be harder to um, to accept the that description, or you know, to, to find find a way of talking about feelings. You know, we we really suspect um, problems of really inter self interrogating, having a self perception of one's own feelings. Um, uh, but if if actually what you see around you is men don't talk about them anyway, like they don't have them, then maybe that's not a problem, right? You don't need to talk about them because men don't don't have feelings except they they get irritated, um, and and the reaction to that certainly for men is substance use often. Um, so again, you know, I think um, when we've got um, a lot of teenage you know, teenage boys more likely uh, to um, have difficulty or finding um, finding it acceptable to talk about their their own feelings, and then you have um, uh, a person with autism who might already be find it challenging to describe what it is that's going on for them. Um, you know, I think that makes things particularly difficult for our, for young people, young men who have autism. Right. So, so if we're thinking about that, there, there's a lot of work being done. I know with educators here and um, and elsewhere with introducing, you know, mild mindfulness and introducing meditation and introducing ways to create safe space to have conversations and to communicate um, so that we can kind of get rid of that sort of stigma uh -huh. um, with sharing emotions. I mean, I think, is is that at least one way to help? Um, well, you, well, yeah, right. So, I mean, those things, those things might be great. For some people mm -hmm. and not great mm -hmm. for others um yeah i think um i think one what's what's important or what's what, what might be really good is um to help young people whether they have autism or not um identify their tricks for mental health if you like so um uh this idea, well, we already know there's this idea, right? You should eat, I think it's five serves of fruit and veg a day or something like that, <laughs> yeah. right? And that's yeah. good for your physical health. So, so it would be great to try to identify the five things that you do a day for your mental health. Um, and um, for some people, that will be, I 
know, I, I do 15 minutes of mindfulness every morning or um, I write in my journal every day um, or um, I go for a run in the evening uh, or I soak in, the, soak in the bath when I come home from work. You know, those are the sorts of things that you might do because you, you know that they relax you, they make you feel better. Um, but often we don't recognize the things that we do that we do because they, um, they help de-stress us. Um, they're kind of, and, and that means that if you don't recognize that, when, when you, you don't notice that you've stopped doing them and that's why you're more stressed. Like, so, you know, I think you're really busy at work um, and, and you're finding it really hard to cope with, with work and you, you might not do that run in the evening because you've got home late and you have to cook and, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and so I think um, it's really good, um, you know, when for, for all young people and particularly um, for people with autism to, to say, well, what things do you find calm you down? Um, do you find that you like singing, for example, or just listening to music? Um, try that. And uh, do you find that you, you do enjoy um, uh, meditating or that you or, or, you know, maybe you actually enjoy the um, if you, what is quite a mindful exercise of cooking and closely following a recipe. Mm -hmm. Right? It, mm -hmm. um, it's about um, you know trying to find those things and and reminding yourself to regularly do them. <laughs> um, right. Once once people have have really um, sort of got into a mental illness, a pattern of of mental disorder often those things are not that great i know plenty of people who find mindfulness when they have a mental illness really bad because essentially it means that they are left alone with their really quite negative thoughts and that's not helpful to them at all so um what might be the most use to you might be different depending on what phase of an illness you're in but certainly in that when you're when you're trying to work out well, what, what's what's a healthy lifestyle to have a lot of these things are easier said than done um, oh absolutely but, um, but, uh, but those are the sorts of things to try and think about you know if um if you've got a young person who's who really enjoys um playing sport then try to help make that happen um especially team sport um uh because um so much of being a young person is about uh social groups and mixing with your peers um, and uh, team sport is great for that because it's it, it's it's in an organised way. It, um, you get exercise as well as social engagement, sure. and we know exercise is really good for um, for people's mental health. Um, so you know, those are the sorts of things to try. Right. So I think some of it is, um, and you said you have teenagers, right? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. sometimes, even regardless of age, it can be super challenging to get buy-in for trying those things, right? Like, oh, it's, yeah, yeah. It, it, <laughs> so I, I wonder if you have any, you know, ideas on, on ways to help kind of get that buy-in for, okay, let's just, let's just try something. We're not committing to something forever. This isn't going to be, um, you know, a sentence, so to speak, but, but it's a, it's, it's a trial and error. And I think the other thing you're, you're mentioning here, which I'm a big advocate of, is uh, really building self-awareness from a very young age, I would think, so that you can be open to talk about these things and be open to trying different things. 
um, super young, but it doesn't have to be if, you know, if you're already now 30, <laughs> it's not too late to try something. Yeah, yeah that's right. Right. So, <laughs> so I think it's tricky when adults try to impose what they think is a good thing to do. Um, so I reckon, I mean, and partly I think there's some sort of mental switch that gets flipped. And I don't know whether it is when you have kids or whether it's just sort of like at age 30, where you kind of blank out that whole experience of being a teenager, or at least certainly those bits where you felt um, very self-conscious and where you didn't think that people around you understood you at all and that they kept coming up with these stupid ideas for things that you should do, but that was nothing like what you wanted to do. You know, so, um, you know the, we need to avoid assuming that just because we as adults think this is a really interesting thing to do, mm. that therefore we should be pushing on um, children or our young people to do it. Um, and the reverse is true as well. Just because just because we think that something sounds a bit lame or boring and um, you you've got to try and um, go where the motivation is so most most young people are really passionate about things um, and you've got to you've got to try and work with that passion rather than against it um so maybe that means you've got somebody who um i don't know really likes skateboarding and wants to get uh always wants to get taken to the skate park or wants or wants um leave to go to the skate park like, well go with it um mm -hmm. just because you never skated or because you think oh it's just you know um um it's not really you get people say oh it's not really a sport like, who cares <laughs> what you want is somebody who's passionate right or, or maybe mm -hmm. um uh <laughs> some things are harder than others and it really depends mm -hmm. on the living circumstances but um but if you've got a young person who says they want to want to play the guitar and you think the guitar is mm -hmm. a stupid instrument or um, slightly more challenging. They really like the idea mm -hmm. of drums. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with a guitar, especially with an electric guitar, at least you can sort of plug it into headphones and it doesn't bother your neighbours <laughs> or whatever, but drums is harder. But again, you, you just got to work out, okay, well, uh, how do we, how, how can I support your um, clear motivation here? Mm -hmm. um, and, and sometimes... It's, again really depends on people's personal circumstances some things cost a lot of money and to yeah. try to pick something up for three weeks and then go actually i don't enjoy it like, I can, we can't we mess. can't keep we can't keep doing this i can't keep right. i can't i can't support you to try all these expensive new ideas um so i recognize that's difficult but those are the sorts of things you've got to at least work out ways of approaching i um uh yeah you want to try this let's give it a go you know i'll, I'll mm -hmm. And let's try and find you a club that you can be part of, or let's find a find a way of of, of letting you have a go at doing this. Um, but yeah, I think um, certainly, I, I I think by the time you reach mid teenage years, something that you as a parent say, "Let's try this," is almost certainly going to be met with in that sense. It doesn't sound good like, because if you want to do it, clearly it can't be that good, right? <laughs> Exactly. But you, you raise an interesting point. And I actually just had a conversation with um, Simon Baron Cohen, and he talks about this idea of following passion. And um, he, he raised, uh, I guess, in his most recent book, he talks about this, 
one person following their passion and it being nurtured and encouraged and um, really looked at, but, but this person didn't have that autism lens, right? We mm. didn't, we weren't looking at them that way, but the other person does. And the other person never really fully reaches their potential with their passion because it was not, um, it was not encouraged and it was not, um, used to the best way that it could have been used. Now, of course, I'm simplifying the, the kind of the, the idea here, but if we follow a child's lead in what they're interested in and what they're passionate about and kind of open up that world to them again with the, with the, you know, given whatever constraints we might have as families or as educators, but kind of do the best that we can in sort of opening those worlds. I think that can relieve some of this um, stress. Totally. And one of the wonderful things about um, the internet and social media is that Mm. there are people who are also interested in that stuff. (laughs) That's right. Um, So, you know, I remember um, uh, when I was doing my PhD in London and a colleague of mine um, was assessing a young boy who I think um, ended up with an Asperger's diagnosis. I know we don't use that diagnosis Mm -hmm. really now. and was really fascinated by vacuum cleaners. When um, when he went to somebody's house, the first thing he would ask was whether he could see that person's vacuum cleaner. And um, which is strange, right? But actually, so what? <laughs> you know, I mean, right? Right? Who's uh, that really harming? Um, <laughs> what was interesting was um, the mum said, "Oh, well, you know, Dad's always been fascinated by." by odd things. Um, he has a collection of photographs of radio transmitters. And Dan was like, what's, what's so odd about that? I mean, you know, look, this is Crystal Palace transmitter is the biggest, <laughs> biggest radio transmitter. You know, the, he would have photo albums of radio transmitters. And like, well, back, back then in like the mid nineties, um, it was hard to find people who, whether it was vacuum cleaners or radio transmitters, who, who had those passions, who were really interested to talk about those things. And it's great to find a supportive social network, right? People who 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 get that interest. And right. we've always had clubs for collectors, right? Whether it's the stamp club, um, or whether it's um, uh, you know people who are passionate about particular books or authors, and um, and it's just so much easier to do that now via social media. And I think in a way, for people who who aren't so good at um, the the social interactions in person, being able to do it online is just a godsend. Um, so I think you can we can lean in more to people's passions, even though they seem mm-hmm. odd, uh, mm-hmm. or, or not what we would be interested in. I mean, so say say they seem odd, it's like they're just not common. I suppose mm-hmm. is what we mean. Sure. Um, and so well, that's great. Let's you know, let's look for others who are interested in it. Maybe you can be part of a Reddit sub, you know, a subreddit group or, you know, there will definitely be people who want to chat with about the stuff who will get you because they get this. Mm-hmm. Right. And then that leads to the other pieces, finding connection, right? So if we find something that we're interested in that de-stresses us, that um, is a passion and we can connect with other people, now we have community, yeah. which is another piece of, of you know, uh, helping with mental illness is to kind of find communities so you don't feel so isolated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, uh, I guess, don't get me wrong, there can be negatives to those communities as well. Or sometimes sure. there can be negatives to those communities. Um, there's a, 
very prominent what's called a pro anna community which is um uh people who have eating disorders who support each other to maintain their eating disorder um uh now that's well that's very unhealthy um but um so so you it's it's not um it's not all one way it's not all positive <laughs> but at, but um uh, at the same time um it's about trying to find find the supportive the positive elements here yeah um one of my colleagues at origin um uh professor joe robinson she's really involved in suicide prevention in fact she and i are starting to do some work about how um suicide prevention strategies might be tailored particularly for people with autism and she's really interested in um uh social social media strategies to support people with suicidal thoughts she has a whole chat safe program about how to talk safely about suicide online and those sorts of things so um you know it's this these kinds of technologies are, are pretty much value neutral and you've got to work out how to use them best or how to find them, get the best out of them Right. No, that that's that's definitely true. And I, I think, you know, you're bringing up a point here that I, I know that there was like another article that I read on JAMA that was um, it's uh, death by suicide among people with autism beyond zebrafish. And uh, in that article, it does talk about tailoring exactly what you just said, like tailoring uh, suicide prevention strategies for people with autism. Um, and I know that's something you're working on right now. Is there anything different that you would approaches that you would say? I mean, I think this online piece is definitely could be one of them. Um, is there anything else that you can share with us as we're... Um. I guess, um, well, so part of this is about trying to identify what's called mediation factors. So um, you, if you draw a line between autism and a suicide attempt, there are things in between that that are the best sort of psychological, usually psychological factors um, that might explain that. And certainly in the work that I've been involved with, um, the the factor that seems really important is hopelessness um so um that's the that's sort of the thing that we're interested in in looking at is is how do you um how do you act to improve people so that they feel that there's more hope for the future and i guess that's um one of the things that i've certainly been thinking about is the way in which um certainly we in Australia, and I guess it's true in other societies as well, kind of don't really see autism after preschool, primary school age. Yeah, the, the, um, that's because, well, because, I'm not sure if I know a because, but certainly to me it seems like there is a, um, a, a lack of um, acceptance of those kinds of behaviors in in adults yeah you just you you know i i can't accept that you just have to behave normally you have to behave like me right and um, where where in a kid i can sort of say well it's just just a kid you know and i mm -hmm. you know but um you know once once you've reached 12 or 13 you must have grown out of your autism now right <laughs> and it's just yeah it's just so unfair it's just not how it works um and so i think that there that some of the um features of hopelessness may be maybe addressable through 
um, trying to uh, find ways to support people to live their lives as they want to live them in the community, right? There's, uh, the, the, for the, I think for those people for whom there is this link between autism and suicide via hopelessness, it's often about that I don't see a future. Um, uh, and so, you, you know, we've talked about community. It's about saying, well, where, how do we generate that community? How do we generate that support? How do we make it clear how somebody's going to um, be able to live their life fully? And that, in many ways, in many ways, that's how we need to work for all mental illnesses. But I think there's particular focus on 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 where people's behaviours are just written off as them them being annoying. Uh, uh, you know, again, finding that tolerance for difference is really important. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I think you know, hopefully, that's where we're headed. As you said, um, one of the things that I have worked with is, uh, yeah, it's almost like once the, you know, education plans and when they finish school, it's like, okay, we did all the things that we needed to do and all the support, but then they go and graduate and then those same supports are never the same and they're not there um, unless there's really extreme circumstances. And that is just not the case for most people. And so if we could find this kind of bridge in between there, that would be, um, that would be ideal, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing this information and your resources. I definitely will be continuing to watch for, um, you know, what kind of work and ideas you come up with for helping with prevention, specifically in this population. But again, I think for all young people, this is definitely a uh, an area that we need to be mm. aware of and alert yeah. with. Yes. Well, also, I mean, I would I would say we need to be thinking in. Like, so one of the things that we're doing at Origin is develop is having clinical services built with autism in mind. So, um, so, um, having a, you know, it's a general youth specific service, um, but built within it is an, is a group of clinicians who are particularly interested in, um, supporting young people who have autism and another mental illness uh, and, and want to build outreach to actually support clinicians in the general community who otherwise kind of feel anxious or feel like they, they don't have the skills to support people with autism when they have another mental illness when actually it's it's mostly about a little bit of training and confidence to support them to do that um that's that seems to me to be really really important that uh, and and it's a way that we are um uh, building we've just had um in the last month a, a royal commission on our mental health system in victoria which is going to see massive uh, investment now and rebuilding of our mental health system and this is one of the things that we've got in mind to to make to make a difference for, for for young people generally but for particularly for those who have significant um autism traits yeah that would that'll be great so if there's ever a, a program running i know there are plenty of clinicians that would be interested in attending something like that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Well, good luck with that. And um, definitely, I will uh, be keeping an eye out and we can keep in touch. That's great. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh. And if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com. And when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.